Hey there, dog people of the internet. I'm Sarah Stremming, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I share my thoughts, experiences, and cases as I interview experts and answer your questions when it comes to the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. It's a new year and I have a news flash. Black lives still matter. I'm looking forward in 2021 to not only continuing to donate to causes that I believe in, but also to providing more of a platform for BIPOC voices in the dog world here on Cog Dog Radio. So stay tuned. All right, by popular demand, we have Kim Brophy back on Cog Dog Radio, and people have really asked for some more practical applications of what Kim and I discussed in the last two episodes that I will, of course, link in the show notes that you guys should check out first. So Kim, welcome back. Thank you. I'm super thrilled to be back for round two. We had too much fun last time. We did. We went a long time. We broke it into two episodes. It was fantastic. And so today we are going to look at just kind of some hypothetical cases. So these are cases that um, are in my head and they're kind of compilations of common questions that I get regarding specific kind of types of dogs. And we're going to go through in a practical sense, kind of tackle these from that ethological standpoint, using your legs model. And I think it's gonna be way too much fun. So first, Kim, explain what the legs model is for everybody. Sure, Um, so the legs model is basically just a kind of skeletal way to think about all the really complicated things that go into any animal's behavior. So uh, if you're looking at it from kind of biology terminology, it's the phenotype of the animal. So it's the interaction of nature and nurture and everything in between. So we've got the genetics that are there um, from the from the from birth for the animal. We have the uh, environment, which is a constantly changing thing. And of course, depends on the moment, depends on the age, the year, et cetera. Um, all of the levels that go into what an environment is, those external conditions. Uh, you have the uh, the learning part of it. So the L is for the learning, uh, which is what the dog's experiences have been or education. So we like to think that we're, you know, our training is the only thing that goes into the L, but really the L is something that's happening all the time with that constant learning. And then the self, which is the internal condition. So age, sex, hormones, disability, injury, disease, diet, et cetera, uh, are all going to go into those internal conditions, as well as maybe any kind of interventions we put in place, such as medication, supplements, uh, things like that, that are going to address the internal state of the animal. I love it. And it's very, very clever that there are four. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> dogs have four legs. legs and stuff, right? <laughs> I know I felt really smart. Yep. <laughs> um, all right. So we're going to jump right in. The first one that I want to talk about is a Belgian Malinois. Okay. We're going to say he's a year and a half old intact male. Okay. He was purchased at eight weeks as a sport prospect. Okay. And the struggle is that he has a hard time in real life situations. So in the real world. So the owner has a hard time getting him adequate exercise because 
anytime a person or a dog shows up and it's, it's an event, uh-huh. meaning um, he, is, he has not actually shown any kind of outward aggression. He has not hurt anybody, but he's extremely forward in his responses if an off-leash dog approaches him. So kind of up on his toes forward, um, up over the back of the other dog. And the other dog may not take that well, basically. So the owner's scared <laughs> of how this is gonna play out, rightfully so. And then if a person shows up, there's, there's barking at okay. that person, yeah. So barking at people, also barking at dogs? If it's in the distance. But she lives in a very dog heavy place. So there can be kind of a constant barrage of dogs. So uh -huh. a dog out, maybe a dog out on the horizon. Yes, he will bark at. Uh-huh. If we're in a constant barrage or the dog kind of rushes up to them because she also lives in a place where they're off leash a lot, um, even though they're not supposed to be. Um, he, his interactions with the other dogs make her nervous, but he's never actually had an altercation. Okay, so we're a little bit on eggshells there, but nothing bad so far. Yes, yes. But so he actually does well if he just kind of gets thrown in the deep end of the pool kind of thing. Better yes. anyway, or better. we'll call it well, but that's some kind of a projection. But, but, but better, yes. Better. Less demonstrative, seems a little <laughs> bit better if he just kind of walks out off these dogs, people walking, you know, the floodgates are open. She worries about him a lot in those circumstances, but... From where I'm standing, yes, he does do better. Okay. Okay. Does she allow him to interact with those dogs in those circumstances? If she can avoid it, no. Okay. But again, they're off leash a lot where she lives. Okay. And then kind of piggybacking on that, it's hard for her to take him to dog sport events or classes uh -huh. because of the number of people and dogs that may be coming and going. Is he... Um better or worse in that situation than say where he lives worse I know objective but less barking more barking there will be more barking in that environment and it almost feels like it's not directed at anything just barking yes okay um and then may go off food in those scenarios so may stop stop Don't eating yeah okay so if you're in a dog training class and there are other people and dogs kind of everywhere. We might start vocalizing. We might stop eating. Okay. And does that also happen in the neighborhood? Does the dog kind of bark seemingly at nothing in particular on when he, you, she leaves her house and goes for a walk and there's all these dogs and loose dogs and whatever. Does she see that same behavior there? No, but she does try to avoid places that are as busy as the class. So kind of if uh -huh. you can picture her neighborhood type of situation, She's going to be seeing maybe in an hour walk, she will see, she will see people almost constantly, but it's not a lot of people constantly, right? So like there will be, you know, perhaps there are eight different dog and handler people that are sharing the same trail. And so they might pass each other um, within that time frame. So it's basically, it is near constant exposure when he's out in the world. However, it is not the same level. So it's not as many people and dogs. So she doesn't live, she doesn't take him to like um, a downtown area or super popular types of suburban areas. She would like mm -hmm. to, but she doesn't. Okay. Did he grow up in this neighborhood that he lives in now? He did. Okay. She did not take him out a lot because of her 
concerns about his behavior. At that young of an age, at the ripe old age of eight weeks? Yes. Was he already exhibiting this behavior at eight weeks? She told me 12 weeks. Uh-huh. Um, and so if I, if I have the history correct, then she started taking him to like puppy kindergarten and things like that. Things started to ramp up. Mm-hmm. And then she stopped exposing him. Oh, so puppy class was a preceding condition to the presentation and the behavior, was it? Yes. Interesting. Do you know what kind of puppy class it was? It was a sport-focused type of class, so there was not free play. Okay. And it's a positive reinforcement-based class. Okay. But there was a lot of action because it's a sport puppy class. So Uh restrained recalls puppies running, things like that. So very, you know, we're doing a restrained recall and all the puppies are on the sideline waiting their turn. We've got very high action types of things going on. Lots of tugging, lots of um, high energy behaviors being taught. Okay. With that being facilitated because of the goal of these being sport dogs. Yes. Okay. Go ahead and step on that gas pedal early then. (laughs) Kim. Speaking my language. Okay. All right. Step on that gas pedal early. So, all right. Um, and so any kind of altercations resulted in any of these situations or right now, are we really just getting a lot of leash drama? It is leash drama. There's no altercation so far. I will say if we can just complicate it further, Mm -hmm. I think one of the reasons that she is afraid is because he has had fights with his housemate. Okay. That is the only dog though that he's had altercations with. Okay, and what is his housemate? His housemate is an older mixed breed, um, largely shepherd type. Intact? No, neutered. Okay. Lots of health problems. She didn't expect him to be alive still. Okay. And um, when was their first altercation? Right around sexual maturity of the Malinois. Okay. So around eight months for him. Okay. And did they get along well when he was a puppy? No, she largely separated them because she expected this. She expected the older dog to not like him. Oh, so she really kind of kept them. Yeah. Largely apart. Largely. Okay. And so, but then obviously if they had a fight at some point, she was letting them together. There, there was a management, um, not a management failure. I would say she was not having them on strict crate and rotate. So it was in passing. Ah, okay. So really no relationship there. Yeah, I would say. Okay. They, they're not walked together, things like that. Correct. They don't, so really no play, not a whole lot going on there. Okay. And what, what was the level of injury? To that other dog, was there any? There was a small puncture wound to the ear. Okay. That's it. And the, did this dog, uh, the Mal, get any uh, injuries from the altercation? No. Okay. Um, and does she walk the dog in the same equipment in all these different contexts? The Malinois? Yeah. Yes. He used to be on a front connection harness until he was probably a year. Mm-hmm. recently he's been switched to a head halter 
um, she's saying the behavior started at 12 weeks. Has the behavior escalated then since sexual maturity or has there any, been any kind of recent development or change nuances to the behavior? Because she does not expose him much. Uh-huh. She feels like, no, she feels like it's generally kind of the same, but his size and overall presence is so much bigger that she's more worried about it. Okay. And so just to kind of recap, her, her basic concern is this leash reactivity, if you will, although I know people change their the favor sure. of what terms they're liking, yeah. but this, you know, high arousal kind of barking, lunging forward, hair up. Is that fair to say too? Yes. Yes. And she's generally, she is afraid of what could happen. So essentially uh -huh. nothing has, but she's very afraid of what could. Does she have goals for this dog to be able to interact or needs, I should say too, for this dog to be able to interact off leash with dogs? Is she planning on having just one dog? Is it more about um, his relationship with other dogs from a distance or tolerance of close proximity without interacting? Or do we have a goal of wanting to facilitate better social skills for this dog? She would say that eventually, eventually she'd like to add another dog to the household when the current older dog is gone. Uh -huh. But that her primary concern is that she feels like she can't get the Malinois adequate exercise because she feels like she can't take him like off leash hiking or off leash skiing. And off leash hiking or skiing is is legal uh, in the area she's in. Here it's not. So we run into some issues in terms of provisions and we need Correct. more sniff spots and things like that, like we talked about last time. Yes. Correct. But um, so that there are opportunities there if she felt like the dog was safer. Right. So there are opportunities in any of these opportunities. There are going to be plenty of other dogs that are off leash. Um, okay. As well as people. So her biggest fear would be that he would bite a person with her second biggest fear being that he would bite a dog because he was off leash and free and exercising yeah. and something showed up that she didn't expect okay has he ever offered to be threatening towards people other than this kind of distance barking no okay has he been appropriate with people in other contexts socially he is not appropriate he will go vertical he'll uh -huh. you know really leap up he want and um almost muzzle punch faces mm-hmm really concerns her so when people come to her house or when they used to um <laughs> um she would manage him she'd put him away because he's so big and she's afraid he's gonna hurt somebody with just jumping on them punching at their faces with his face so it's it feels to me almost like over the top sociability rather than aggression mm -hmm. uh-huh yeah i was gonna say is there anything else in that kind of context of the you know jumping up and almost muzzle punching people's faces are there any other kinds of collections of signals in that context either stiff body loose body low tail high tail um so it would be um really frenetic movement lots uh -huh. of um really frenetic movement no stillness definitely no stillness or stiffness if she gets him under control and maybe in a downstay, uh -huh. then he's going to become this kind of tightly coiled spring. There's going to be mm. whining, mm -hmm. no actual relaxation. Um, that's when you're going to see the tense body language is when he's kind of being controlled in that scenario. And everyone knows, obviously, if we're really doing a full like 
you know, case review, get all the stats and whatever. There's a whole lot of things we want to get in terms of history and whatever. And for the sake of time, we aren't going to do a crazy, wicked deep dive into all that where I get the complete life history and diet and all of that stuff. But I will ask one general question. Is there anything in the internal circumstances from a um, health or developmental or congenital you know, kind of perspective that I need to be aware of for this particular dog, any abnormalities? No, very healthy. So is she competing with this dog at the moment? She's not, she'd really like to, but because it, because of all the issues, that's why she's not. So she's doing only at home training. And, and is that what sport is the dog hopefully going to be involved in agility? Like agility is her number one choice. And is the dog, uh, into the agility by its own right, despite her concerns, enjoys doing the training in agility or seems to participate willingly with some enthusiasm? A lot of enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. Um, She struggles with him in all training scenarios becoming what she would describe as um, aroused or frustrated. Mm -hmm. So if she is a robotic, very clean, excellent trainer, Mm-hmm. he's spot on he's fantastic and yes he enjoys it mm-hmm. but she is a human and so <laughs> sometimes mm-hmm. um he will kind of explode into barking fits he does not bite her mm-hmm. but he can explode into barking fits to the point of um bloodshot eyes and really heavy panting and really kind of just not okay yeah okay a level where it's like clearly distress yes, yes. yeah okay um, does she work retired? She works from home. Okay. All right. So she has the time, in other words, to kind of uh, create. She health, basically develop, devotes a lot of time to this dog and is okay. willing to do that going forward. Okay. So she's got the time to kind of weave in some, some effective uh, exercise opportunities. Yes. She would like to be doing a lot of that for him. She realizes that's a deficit. All right. Well, let's play with it a little bit. Uh, Again, um, just because we are in the interest of time, you know, people don't be writing me afterwards or Sarah and being like, she didn't didn't ask ask about this this very specific question. She didn't ask this. You always have to ask this. And yes, if it was someone else and, you know, we had all the time in the world, then I would spend We are playing around today. We're playing a game, right. Just to get you guys thinking about things a little bit differently. So, um, I when, usually what I'm doing with those clients and I'm kind of trying to piece the puzzle back together for them. Uh, I will often start with the um, genetics of the animal just because I feel like it kind of gives us a point of reference. Like, well, what are we looking at? What is it in the first place? So first, just in terms of talking about Malinois, um, I think we, we can all agree, anyone listening to this show, if they've ever interacted with Malinois that we might describe them as a bit high arousal, a bit on the excitable side when things are very exciting. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, to go a level uh, deeper, uh, the herding dogs in general were bred for, we talked a little bit about this last time, sudden environmental contrast response. So your note about the difference between the dog coming out in its own neighborhood, whereas there's some level of predictable presentation of environmental stimuli where the dog is better by our read anyway, the dog seems more functional in that environment, um, is interesting in comparison to either a highly stimulating environment that just maintains a very high level of stimulation, um, 
or you describe something being presented from a distance when we're not in the pattern of expecting that to, to, to present. And so as long as I've normalized the way that these environmental stimulus are presenting themselves and there's some level of predictability, then the dog is gonna be able to cope with that information a little bit better. Um, but yes, one of the side uh, bonuses, if you will, of selecting for these guys, whether they're in herding or then they're used for police and military or other sports or bite sports or what have you, is that we did very much build up their response to those kind of contrasting environmental stimuli. Um, and so we get these kind of spikes, these arousal spikes. And we all know once we get an arousal spike too, sometimes that means we have the frontal lobe kind of go off board for a few minutes and have some mm -hmm. challenges communicating with the dog. Um, so I think that helps explain at least partly what we're getting there. And it's clear that there's kind of a line in the sand in terms of a, a, a level of arousal or a certain presentation of contrasting arousal where the dog loses the emotional regulation and the ability to have any kind of frustration tolerance or executive control. Mm -hmm. um, unless the person is like ninja with her timing and is perfectly robotic, which is- Right, like I mentioned, right, exactly. Yeah, um, and I would just make the point there that on the same note that we're talking about the environmental predictability, I think part of what uh, is really hard with these dogs is us being part of the environment, our behavior being part of the environment in a general sense and their relationship in life, but also in that moment as their handler, we also become a stimulus which is either predictable or not predictable. Mm -hmm. For like a herding breed, that can really matter because their, their whole orientation because of the selection for creating order out of chaos, because that's what you have to do when you have sheep that are disorderly, you have to create order out of that chaos. So that's their natural kind of propensity is, you know, if, if they're trying to read and follow cues from people that are not robotic, hang your hat on it, consistent, predictable, that's just another kind of element that's going to increase the dog's level of, of stress and arousal. It's literally another thing for them to have to filter. Yes. Wow. Yes. Yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, and I think, you know, when you really back up, it's, we had a fun time, um, myself, Kathy Murphy and Andrew Hale talking a few days ago about a lot of this kind of stuff and the whole perception of the animal as they're like trying to process the world around them. Um, and, and this is just what that reminds me of is like, so in a, say a sports event, uh, the dog is looking at the conditions in those environments. And there's a lot of sensory information in that environment. Um, you know, olfactory, visual, auditory, um, tactile, et cetera. And, and so one of the interesting things about the dogs, which anyone who's had a herding dog will really relate to, is that if you can really fill those shoes squarely, which is tough, in the midst of all that storm, you can become the thing the dog can hang their hat on. Mm -hmm. The problem is it's really hard to become a thing your dog can hang their hat on in the midst of all of that. That's asking a lot of a handler. Mm -hmm. uh, and so a lot of people just have a difficult enough time observing their own behavior objectively enough to make them, you know, change their behavior enough to be that predictable. I do think it's interesting if we're going to the, to the learning component here, I'm going to jump around a bit now that we've talked a little bit about the Malinois deal, um, you know, in the early socialization critical period of this dog, it seems to me like there was a little bit of a setup for some of these behaviors to kind of get the, get the hot plate set underneath oh, yeah. them. 
because, um, you know, I've, I always have concern really for any dog, but particularly dogs that are just kind of genetically built to be high drive. Uh, when we turn on that drive at critical periods of development and get those neural pathways really flowing in that direction, um, particularly as it relates to the presentation of other dogs and, you know, things moving around and exactly the kind of environment that we want to be able to be competing in. On the one hand, we're doing what socialization tells us to. We're exposing them to things that we want them to have a point of reference for for the rest of life. But conversely, from my perspective, I would have been working from a very young age at a fantastic on-off switch for this dog. And the cornerstone for anything that's happening in life being the development of what I call the grip contingency. So emotional regulation. Anytime you're aroused the grip contingency is pre-macking any of those environmental conditions so that access to that activity, that person that you wanted to say hi to, that dog that you wanted to play with, your dinner before it hits the ground, the ball before I throw it again, is contingent not just on something like a superficial sit or a down, where as you said, they're just like cocked and loaded and ready to fire, but actually the emotional regulation of okay, like I could shake that off. I could like lay down, give you a, a flipped out hip, you know, maybe like yes. bathe myself for a second here. Um, and I think we're, we're taught often in the world of training, funnel the drive. We touched on this last time a little bit about redirecting to a tug and high arousal scenarios. Yeah. yeah. And it's this really delicate dance of, of course you want drive and performance, but can we work with this animal on a literal like neurological neuroplasticity kind of a level to help them develop the ability to clearly define those riverbeds behaviorally for themselves so that in this context and upon these conditions, which I would try to then make highly predictable for a dog like this, so that it's you have a nice mathematical equation for the dog of if this and this and this, then that in terms of then we can go full on, full tilt, all the arousal, let's put that drive to focus and work. But I would be working on in all the other contexts from the very beginning, shaping that dog, being able to process at a level and a pace with the environmental stimuli that allows them to become regulated before they're able to access things. Because I think there's a lot of like superstitious accidental reinforcement of the drive and the lack of emotional regulation in these dogs simply because they're difficult to parent. Well, and we kind of teach what I refer to as fake self-control. Uh-huh. Like that, like that coiled, quivering downstay, right? And I talked about, I actually have an episode about self-regulation and the fact that it is very different from what sport trainers generally refer to as impulse control. Mm -hmm. Because typically when sport trainers say that, what they're talking about is teaching the dog to back away from reinforcement in order to gain access to reinforcement. And what I see is the dog just... Sure, spring loading themselves into a, yeah. into a backward, they're like, I'm ready for it, I'm ready for it, I'm re- right? right? Whereas I want to see them actually go, All right, I'm yeah. okay. And then yeah. we allow access to things. And it is, it takes a, it just takes a finer eye for those mm-hmm. little things and more, more just kind of allowing the dog to make those decisions and figure that out and then facilitate access to what they want rather than these very contrived training scenarios. 
Exactly. And that's that's why I, I like the whole idea. I Just if anyone doesn't know, I'm an enormous pre-Mac fan because I feel like it, it just ties right into the ethological lens of the purpose of behavior in the first place is it's meant to be functional for actual conditions, you know, if you're trying to survive and we're not talking about kind of a training situation. Um, and so realizing that throughout the day, there's all sorts of things that are going to be exciting to a puppy or a dog or stimulating or, or stressful or what have you. But whenever we create space by saying, I'm sorry, so nothing further is going to transpire until you get it together and, and pressure off, right? Like the, rather than get it together, downstate, calm, re relax. Like, I love this, like, you know, this whole idea that people are like, if I just tell my dog to relax, you know, then I can make them relax on a cue. I need a relaxed cue. And it's like, did you ever relax when you're really stressed when someone turns around and says to you, Sarah, relax. No, no, I, that's a case of aggression from me. Right, right. You tell me to relax. I'm going to get redirected. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be snapping at you. Yes. Um, you know, it, it's almost just insult to injury. And I think in a way creates also some cognitive dissonance for the dog as a social animal in a relationship with us where we're asking them to follow our lead and take our advice at the end of the day that's what basically social leadership is, is who's in the best position to make the decisions, keep us safe, has the information, has the assertiveness towards conditions. So if I'm saying, yeah, trust me, I have great information, follow my lead. And then you're totally stressing out about something. And I'm just trying to shut that down or force yeah. you to change your behavior. Mm -hmm you're losing trust in me. You're, you're saying, Kim, either you don't see the stressful thing because you're blind or deaf or stupid, or you're trying to trick me. It's also why I don't like redirecting. And we talked about this a little bit last time too, is that it doesn't feel often like it's in good faith. So when we have the dog do arbitrary behaviors in the face of something that's over arousing, stressful, concerning for them, we're not really on the same page. If we're like, not talking about the thing. So the example I use at my office all the time when I have clients there, when they're like, well, I've been trying to redirect the dog whenever they're exploding on stuff. Is that if a bunch of dudes walk by the window right now with AK-47s and you know, you jump up and freak out and you're like, oh my gosh, what's happening? And I'm like, hey, never mind that. Come over here. Come on, dance with me. Let's put on some music. I'll give you some cake. And you're like, but what about the dudes with the guns outside yeah. the window? And I'm like, no, 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 over here. Sarah, over here, look right. at me. You know, right. you're like, okay, let me just, Kim does not know what's up or she's in on it, right? But either way, I don't feel like I can take her advice. And this is, pathology matters, y'all. Like relationships matter. And so the tone they and that- so much. It matters so much. They gotta, they, you have to prove it, right? You have to prove it. 24-7, yeah. you're selling it one way or another, right? They're taking notes about who you are and whether you're something they can hang their hat on, you have good information and you're trustworthy, keeping them safe. So in that situation, I want to say, yeah, there's a thing. Yeah, you're freaking out about the thing. All right, if you're freaking out and losing it, I'm going to make sure that you have no access to that, which in that moment might even include visual access. Mm -hmm. So I might do a go-between, use some ethology, social signal, body language, running interference. I got it. You're a little overwhelmed. You're a little stressed out by that. Take it down a notch. Take my word. I know we're talking about the same thing. Okay. I'm not going to put any pressure on you, but I'm just going to block your visual contact until there's a little bit of a de-escalation because I'm signaling that I'm taking initiative towards the circumstance. I'm not actually trying to even get you to stop. I'm not standing in between you and the dog and yelling at you, correcting you, or trying to get you to sit or do something else. I'm just going to run this nice buffer 
again, another fun human example here. You're at a bar with a friend. She's four sheets to the wind, not even three. She sees her ex across the bar and she's like, they they cheated on me and they stole my money and I'm going to go beat the out of them. What, what are you going to do? What's a good friend going to do, right? You're going to stand between your friends. Well, interference. Money, <laughs> not worth it. You don't want to go to jail over that person. So that's what I'm talking about. When I'm talking about running interference and doing a go-between, this is not about pressure. This is about, I got it, and that signaling. The animals will read that signal at some point and be able to transition, even if it's a notch down, at which point I step out of the way, we look at it together and we can talk about it. But either way, I wanna give you the time that you need to work out what you need to, realizing I'm gonna minimize the pressure if you get overwhelmed. And then we can talk about the thing together. We can talk about the dudes with the gun. I can tell you, oh, they're just going to an NRA rally down the street. They're not really coming in here to kill us. But then we can be on the same page. Now, obviously, thresholds are a thing, right? So like putting the dog into a situation that's super over a threshold and then trying to work on this stuff is going to backfire. So for her, she's got to figure out what is the exposure, distance, volume, what have you, that this dog can handle where she's able to communicate and keep the dog's brain on board. But I would argue that it has a lot to do with everything other than those contexts first and all the moments throughout the day where she's demonstrating through the relationship whether she's something she can that the dog can hang his hat on um, and also whether she's working with that kind of grip contingency throughout the day helping the dog work on their own self-regulation as a life skill as a tool and that's different as you said than that performed cocked fake relaxed behavior yeah um So I would also be looking at, you know, I don't want to like spend forever in the weeds of a dog that probably doesn't even exist, but I'd be looking at my equipment and stuff. You talked about how the dog's on a, on a head halter. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that depending on the dog that can add or, or it can reduce stress levels. Some dogs do much better on a head halter and immediately feel like they have permission to stand down. Other dogs are going to get more upset and distressed. So the details there about what equipment we're using um, to help reduce that overall level of distress and dysfunction is also important. Um, So again, just going back to the legs model, in the environment, my biggest thing would be for the client to create more predictability in that environment on a day-to-day basis Mm. and try not to create these kinds of like arousal spikes which then stand out of pattern. So these dogs a little bit on the type A, right? And so the more we can say tight ship, we do it like this. We do it the same way every time, the better. Um, I joke with a lot of my clients with herding dogs. It can really help to write their manual for real. Something like going out the door, dinner time, how we go for a walk, how we do the game. If we have step one, step two, step three for every one of those things, it gives the dog a higher quotient of predictability. And for a lot of these dogs, there's a direct correlative of their anxiety going down when that predictability goes up, just because the world feels like a more predictable place where they know what's happening. With the walking and the exercising thing, just to touch on that, that is a little bit of a pickle that a lot of people really run into. And you and I both very much appreciate the whole importance of decompression, taking the pressure off, not asking the dog to do anything. Um, Depending on the location, this would be a dog that I would want on a 30 foot line hiking Mm -hmm. um, rather than off leash, but giving the dog opportunities to just use the senses, use the instincts autonomously in nature is going to have a lot of value too 
Of course, you have off-leash dogs approaching, and that can be very scary to go into those situations. But at the same time, um, if you've got a longer leash, then your dog has more room to behave naturally mm -hmm. in that yeah. kind of situation. Um, and so I think you're, you're stacking the deck. Now, here we have a, a resource available. I'm not sure if it's available where you are, but we have a local um, daycare that is run by someone who's extremely behaviorally savvy. So we can actually send dogs there for assessments and for some work so that they can kind of develop some of those social skills in a safe, structured environment, even if they're a little bit dicey and they, you know, they need a little bit of work to be completely and totally good with dogs. So so if they were here, I'd be suggesting that they go there as well. Yeah. So, you know, it's a fake case, but just some various it's ideas. It's a fake case. There are elements of it in a few real cases. And I think, and those people will be listening. So I think that that's all very, very helpful. Um, the one thing that's really standing out to me is that being the being a thing the dog can hang their hat on <laughs> rather than yet another thing the dog has to filter. Yeah, right. Right. Huge. Yeah. And, and, you know, we didn't, again, we didn't get lost in the weeds on this stuff because it's kind of a fake case, but the dog being, you know, um, not yet socially mature, mm -hmm. we can, we can expect more questions through the developmental process. Right. And so there should be like a rechecking out. Can I hang my hat on you? It's mm -hmm. sexual maturity and social maturity. So even if we bought it hook, line and sinker for year one or two, oftentimes they hit social maturity and they're looking at us differently again. Like, they do. are you really my best chance for survival yeah or maybe I should drive right maybe I do a better job taking care of me than you do yeah so that you know and him being intact I mean there's tons of questions about whether that's a bonus or whether that's a deficit the jury is so out on it <laughs> we so don't know we don't know you know um and so I I don't know that I would add that as, as an agent one way or another right now it doesn't sound like the behavior is about that so I wouldn't be touching it at the moment yeah it doesn't um, feel like that to me yeah but I didn't hear any other self conditions that were kind of concerning and he sounds like a perfectly normal Malinois mm -hmm. that just doesn't know he he doesn't have good coping skills, frankly, yeah. and coping skills start at home when the, the stakes are low and arousal is at a two, not a 10. And I think one of our mistakes as an industry is we don't realize all those millions of opportunities we, we have during the day to work on those little neural pathways and how that animal is coping with excitement and various circumstances, whether it's just someone coming over, which is less exciting than the you know agility competition or something, but it's still an arousal spike and teaching appropriate coping skills there. And so in the interest of time, we won't jump into the visitors thing, but if you were my client, I would jump into a whole kind of way to go about having people over to those same ends to make sure we're, we're building up some functional emotional regulation and coping skills. Absolutely. Awesome. Okay. We're basically picking on the most fun kinds of dogs to pick on or not even fun, but just the easiest yeah. kinds of dogs to pick on because I want this to be obviously as juicy as possible. And to be honest, my clientele, um, I don't get a whole lot of like I have a sweet lab puppy who I just want to give the best start. Like I, that's not my life. So, <laughs> right. so um, the next one is we're going to call a pit bull. Okay. She is not embarked, but she very much appears. She meets that meets that phenotype. Well, okay. Adopted from a rescue at eight weeks. 
okay, was born in the foster home, um, was spayed by the rescue at eight weeks. Wow. Okay. And then adopted out. Owner worked at a dog daycare, so attended dog daycare every day, five days a week, was with other dogs the majority of the day, was given some nap breaks, but generally speaking with other dogs during the day, five days a week. The first actual fight with injury that she had, she was a year and a half of age. She was in the daycare. It was with another spayed female, German Shepherd. Um, It was at a threshold. So they both tried to go through the same door at once. Okay. Stopped going to daycare at that time. Do we know who started the words there at the threshold? She did. The Pitbull did. Okay. Oh, and she is now two and a half years of age. So that was a year ago. Okay. So stopped going to daycare, started to have to be at home during the day because the owner still works there. Okay. Tried to have her- Stopped going after that first altercation? Yes, because it was injury causing to a client dog. Okay. What were the injuries? Just a torn ear. Um, And also somebody, the German Shepherd's tongue was bitten. They speculate that she bit her own tongue, but nobody knows. Okay. So lots of blood. Okay. But all face, ear? All face, ear. Yep. Okay. Um, Pipple didn't, Pipple had scratches also face uh, because she's got a white face. So it was super easy to see. Okay. Um, In about, before that happened, so around like a year of age, the owner started to notice some stiffening, and then at other dogs when out in public on leash and saw other dogs, owner would respond by kind of tightening up and trying to redirect, mm-hmm. which would sometimes escalate the behavior into barking and lunging. Dog has not had an altercation other than that one in the okay. daycare, okay. but the barking and lunging on leash has escalated to a point that the owner doesn't even like walking the dog. So now the dog's world is, as I like to say, the dog's world is small now. Mm-hmm. So the dog is a homebody now, is not walked a lot, does not go to work anymore. Owner feels not great about this. Mm-hmm. But the dog is, they've got a furbo and the dog is pretty much curled up on the couch. Mm-hmm. Not having a lot of problems being left home from where I'm standing. Um, the dog seems to be okay, chilling. Yes. Okay. So she's okay being at home. Um, However, the owner feels like her exercise needs cannot be met because she can't take her anywhere and she's not taking her to daycare anymore. Right. Okay. Goals would be. Okay. Off leash hiking on the weekends. (laughs) Goals would be off leash hiking on the weekends. Um, Owner would like to walk the dog around the neighborhood on the evening in the evening when she comes home from work but doesn't because of the barky lungy behavior at other dogs and would owner is single and worries that there might be another person getting involved who might also have a dog at some point and kind of worries about that being a a potentially in the future thing. 
And is there, um, clearly if she works at the daycare, it presents a little bit of a problem for her to bring a dog to daycare that has injured another dog. Right. But given the relative low level of that injury, has there been any thought to trying other daycares where she wouldn't have that complicated variable of working there? She has not considered that because of the breed and the fact that there was an incident at her work. So she's kind of worried about her dog and her dog's breed and the stigma getting getting involved in another daycare. She Again, if you were here, I'd be sending you guys to my local buddy over I'm here. I'm so jealous day. that you've got that. Because that's oh, it's, the kind it's of thing. A, it's the best resource ever because it's controlled. Yes. People have already signed liability release for the dogs <laughs> to go there. So you're not like, you know, running any kind of legal problem there. And, and to have that skilled and competent of a person comfortable with having a dog come in who either has a bite history with a person or a dog, it's worth its weight in gold because then they, we can get more information mm-hmm. about what we're really looking at. Now, if it had been like a severe mauling, there's no way there, he wouldn't right. touch it with a foot pole, but it's very helpful for the cases like this. Yeah, very yeah. invaluable. That's an amazing yeah. resource. Yeah. So, um, okay. So then we don't, there's a lot we don't know then, right? Because were things pretty universally fine up until one and a half years. And then all of the sudden the behavior occurred. She would say, you she would other say than that, the least stuff. So the fight was one and a half okay. years of age. There would be other, there were other moments that she would call scuffles that were noisy, but over very quickly and nobody got hurt. Mm-hmm. up to that mm-hmm. uh, she the owner feels as though it escalated to the injury causing fight whereas rather than that being out of the blue uh-huh she almost feels like in retrospect I should have seen this coming like this she was becoming less and less tolerant of other dogs as she grew up uh-huh was she playing at daycare up until that altercation or would no? Only as a puppy, probably under under six months or so. There was play. And after that, not into playing. No. Follow mom around. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, again, that would make me really want to try the dog in a daycare away from mom. Um, and I'll kind of, you know, come back yeah. to that from from the well, legs I, model. But sure. I talk about it as I call it remedial socialization. When right. you you know, try to get them involved with other dogs and almost, you know, yeah, learn in some really constructive ways how to cope and function around other dogs. So if there were a resource like that available to her, right, that'd be a great option. Okay, so there aren't any other daycares where she lives that that would be there is somebody that does like um, off leash group walks, but not a daycare. Okay, so that's not as controlled of an environment. So a little more nerve wracking. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. And did the dog have any history with this particular German Shepherd? No. Okay. Any other things that are noteworthy about the dog's health, nutrition, disability, pain, anything else to keep The only thing reported is some food allergies, maybe some food sensitivities. So so occasional GI, occasional skin breakout. Okay. And you said it's a white pity, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, I see a lot of that in white pitties. I don't yeah, know about everyone do. else. Yeah, you do. white dogs in general, though, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> okay. Um, so sad, right? I feel bad for this dog and for this person already. It just feels like they're kind yeah. of cornered. And I think this is also a really common one, right? Like, yeah. I feel like I've had hundreds of this story 
right here. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is so a dog story that is pieced right. together of, of so many different dogs. Yes. Right. Right. Where you're just like, there's so much truth in this one. So, and, and the dog's good with people still. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That all sounds good. So yeah, let me break this one down real quick from a legs perspective. Um, so first of all, one of the things I'm loving about this particular case for the sake of our conversation is that it gives me an opportunity to say when people get their panties in a wad, not picking on anyone in particular about talking about G means we're being predictive. Mm -hmm. This is a perfect case in point about how there's four legs. And in this particular situation, there are some elements of the G that are not on point for the selective uh, behaviors of a, a pit bull type dog or a yes. bully breed type dog. So remembering that genetics are always uh, under the effect of variation and diversity. And so you're gonna have kind of a standard deviation with some variables in there, which from the information we have so far, seems like the dog, at least at this point, is not fulling, uh, falling right in the middle uh, for, for the selected behaviors. So right. um, let's start again with the G and let's talk about what the intentions of people who are breeding for dogs for um, uh, historically, not necessarily today's pit bull breeders or bully breed type breeders, but what they were bred for historically. And unfortunately, what many people are still breeding them for today. Yes. So originally and ongoing, sadly, these dogs um, are have been bred for blood sport, which means conflict with another animal and an altercation uh, often for for money, for you know bet, for prestige, cash, whatever. but so you know pitting one animal against the other to see who can win mm -hmm. uh, and who can take home the prize. So in thinking about what's desirable if you are that breeder and that person, um, and there's a special place in hell for those people, for anyone who's listening. Absolutely. <laughs> then what you're wanting is a dog that is um, going to not spend uh, any kind of time or energy, <clears throat> waste anything warning the other individual through ritualized aggression, sure. but rather just gets down to business. So let's review really quickly that ritualized aggression <clears throat> in nature is actually meant to avoid true conflict and altercation. So through all of these various signals, I can tell you how I'm feeling, what my motivations are, what my boundaries are, et cetera, through all these displays at the hopes that we can all avoid a fight and something that's expensive in that economy of behavior, right? The cost of a fight can be very expensive. So nature has a natural desire, if you will, to select against full-blown altercation. But that's not true for people who are breeding fighting animals. Yeah. People who are breeding fighting animals want to select against ritualized aggression and select for all-in zero to 60 engagement, okay? So what's interesting to me here is for as much as it looks like May, who knows whether it's genetic, who knows whether the socialization really did a lot of really great stuff for this dog at a young age. We know the dog gets, you know, aroused when it sees other dogs and is passing on leash and we have some leash, you know, reactivity or hyper arousal or defensiveness that's occurring. Um, but at the same time, I would argue that there's some possibility here that even if the genetics were kind of on point where we were able to have some effect through balancing through the other legs, which is the whole point of using legs with that early socialization with other dogs, that maybe this dog learned lots of functional conflict resolution 
in the early critical months of development, which means that in that moment with that dog, when there was an actual altercation, those injuries I would consider still on a, on a highly inhibited ritualized totally. point on the spectrum. Yes. Could have been way more severe. We did not get that kind of textbook ideal, what the breeders want, full all in engagement, you know, bite, hold, shake, etc. So that's a bonus. That's why I would say don't give up with that dog. Yeah. If you if you want to have a dog that can be with other dogs, now it's on you to try to find what those opportunities are going to be in some kind of a controlled situation. If even if you've got to drive a mile to another daycare, a town, I mean, a, or an hour to another daycare, a town over, um, in order to find that opportunity. But I would very much be looking for that. Um, now it's also possible. So we're talking about, you know, the, the age of the dog being around one and a half years when that happened. The dog's just now two and a half years. So in a way, we know, like with the last case, social maturity is kind of coming onto the scene here. So we have what's called emergent behaviors based on changes in internal development and age and sex, where that dog may have more engagement now because we're socially mature and we don't know yet because sometimes the full kind of behavior just is there at social maturity when you only got pieces of it leading up to social maturity. So I'd have that in the back of my mind, but I'd also be saying, you know, so far the indicators are good that we have some ritualized communication here. Um, I wanted to add that um, any uh, context of either altercation or the, the signal of restraint are two further selected releasing stimuli for this particular type of dog mm -hmm. because of the way that dog fighting occurs. And so literally what looks like me and you walking down the street with our dogs towards each other on leashes restraining them is kind of the dun, 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 okay. two dogs on opposite sides of a ring being restrained by their persons, right? And so there, there is a phenomenon that's really good to keep in mind if you're working with bully breeds at all, really any dog, this is true, but it's more true for dogs where we selected for this, we I use loosely, is that you want the dog to escalate upon restraint. Mm -hmm. You want it to feel like you're pulling back that rubber band, like we were kind of talking about with the Malinois. I was just going to say, which is also true of bite sport. Dogs. Yes, it's also true. Yes. Bite There's a reason they call them agitation collars. There's a reason. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and this is right. It's true. Anytime you're working for bite sports or full engagement, like you want to be able to pull back that rubber band and then let go. Yep. And so there, oftentimes when these dogs are right on the fence of engagement, the very thing that will make them fly off the handle is you pulling back. Yeah. And so, you know, something is simple in that moment, again, to kind of use that whole friend in the bar go between thing, just using something like a go between if it's possible um, in those situations can sometimes be more helpful. Yes, that means you're putting yourself between your dog and another dog. But if you can catch it ahead of time, and you have enough of a window of opportunity there, that can be very useful. Um, and also, again, the atmosphere of conflict. So you have two dogs, dogs get in conflicts all the time. Again, normally, normally by nature's breeding and many breeds of dogs dogs not bred for altercation of any type, the whole kind of like atmosphere of conflict isn't in itself any kind of releasing stimuli. It's just conflict to then be navigated. But for these dogs, in the same way that we might have the releasing stimuli of a fast moving object for a herding dog, the atmosphere of conflict can in itself be a releasing stimuli for these dogs. Yeah. Because they're bred to pick up on them. That. And especially if it feels like a stage. So like 
the whole everyone's watching it feels like an arena like you know the crowd is roaring it's really interesting how you start with looking at like what is the environment in which this behavior was built and facilitated and and what do we want the dog to respond to for optimal performance that's then going to help inform when to express certain behaviors so again though this dog so far is seeming like at least a slight outlier on a couple of those things. So um, I would be working with the dog on, again, emotional regulation, life skill, grip contingency, important for every dog ever. But this sounds like a dog where I would, again, be really wanting to work on that and the ability to, you know, turn it off. Um, you know, get aroused and then make good decisions. Uh, I also like for situations where we're talking about altercations potentially with other dogs. So for both of these dogs, potentially teaching an out or an all done. So mm -hmm. basically a cue that helps them mentally pivot. Uh, so I'll have my clients naming the end of various events, whether it's the end of dinner, the end of a walk, whatever, all done, all done with all these nominal, just boring things happening throughout the day. So that when we're in that tense moment of fronting and posturing and getting close to the other dog, and we're right on that fence, if we have an understanding of all done means pivot onto the next thing, then, you know, building in some skills like that. And everyone has their different little tricks of ways they like to do it, like leave it, you know, I'm just laughing, Kim, because I did this accidentally and my cue is all done. Really? Like my dog Felix, I taught end of session signal being yeah. all done. Yeah. Because the session is very important to him. So I needed very clear, we're done now, we're not training anymore signal. Yeah. And I did all done. And like, I just instinctively also, we're out on a trail. He's meeting another dog that's off leash. He, things are starting to get like a little bit too much, a little bit too hot. And I just went one day, I just went, Felix, all done. And he was like, oh, okay. Pivot. <laughs> and That's I was like, exactly wow, that what happened amazing. to me. That's exactly <laughs> what happened to me. I learned it with my own dog because this last puppy I've raised with just name everything, which by the way, people, if I had one big thing that I would want to put on a poster, that is one of those things. Name everything. Dogs have incredible receptive language ability. We do not talk to our dogs enough. They are lacking so much information about the world around them. For God's sake, talk to them like full on Mr. Rogers neighborhood, Sesame Street. Give yourself permission to it's not one word commands. It's, it's consistent patterns of phrasing, just like a young child would be picking up on. And then just like children are learning those general concepts, like with all done, like we're talking about, the dog can then take in a novel situation with no prior training, a concept that we've consistently used, which means, so now you're mentally just going to drop that and pivot when you were really aroused. It's, it's amazing. It is amazing. And yes. we don't do this enough in dog training because we've been taught to think that they're not smart enough and they're not capable, but geez, people, they've been evolving with us for 10 to 40,000 years, depending on what study you're looking at. We know that they are professionals at reading our facial expressions, our body language, our gestures. And we talk to them. We think of all the words and commands that we're using and teaching them. But for some reason, we think it ends at like training cues like they come right. pre-wired to receive sit down stay come heal and fetch but somehow not something like all done or go out or you know which is why I casually say the word outside yes in conversation my dogs are all uh-huh that and right. see we all know that anecdotally don't we we all start so to do it on purpose 
Right. Do it on purpose. Yes. Do it on purpose. And I, I literally, it, people think I'm completely nuts, but when I'm moving about throughout my day in my house with my dogs, my life, I tell them everything I'm doing before I do it. And then I say it again while I'm doing it. And then I say it like after the fact, we just did the thing. So what's so interesting to me is that I can tell my dogs, Hey, we're going to go for a walk, but I need to go upstairs and get my shoes let's go upstairs. They run upstairs and beat me upstairs. Yay, we're upstairs. Where's mommy's shoes? They run over to mommy's shoes. Here are your shoes, you dumb woman. Put them on your feet and hurry up and go downstairs. Here's mommy's shoes. Ready? Let's go outside. They go outside. Here we are. Time to go for a walk. And it's not just the, you know, you're not training in the kind of formal sense. You're literally communicating and remembering that these dogs have found themselves in a fish out of water set of circumstances. The more information you give them, y'all, that, that is in direct contrast to the level of anxiety because, and let me geek out on a small tangent before we jump back to this dog. Remember the brain most of the time is operating brain body behavior on habit, instinct, and emotion, because that is the economy of behavior and brain energy spending. So it takes way more energy for me to use frontal lobe and executive function. So most of the time I'm just like operating on habit, emotion, and instinct, okay? So there's a lot of things our dogs are gonna react to on habit, emotion, and instinct that we're gonna be like, what the actual heck though, right? I don't want that behavior. And then we deal with it after the fact to try to collect it. So I want you to think about if I say, if I take you to a hospital right now and I just walk you into a room, sit you on a bed, a bunch of people start coming into the room and start doing things to you. Your first thought is what's happening? What's happening? What's going on? What are they doing? Why are they doing that? Why is he touching me? You have all of these questions and nobody's giving you any information. So pretty quickly, you're going to go into a fight or flight response and start smacking these people that came into the room, unless somebody starts giving you some answers. What helps in all of these moments when dogs have no idea what's going on throughout the day is give them information. So then if you give the brain information for that frontal lobe to chew on before something starts, then we can override the emotion habit and instinct response, right? Yeah. Then they go, oh, okay. This is why cooperative care is a thing, right? You have good bed. thinking about cooperative care right now because right? I can say to my dog, it, we're just doing this. It's just happening. Yep. Yep. And you do feel them kind of relax into, okay, this is just, I call it HDSS, humans do stupid stuff, except yeah. that you know me, it's not really stuff. And right. so, so they just, they just kind of go, oh, you're doing the thing where you do things to me. Right. And but then now I have information yes. that like, oh, you're doing a thing, which I also have predictive value of as not hurting me and not being right. horrifying because I have trust in you. So if you tell me you're doing a thing and I just, I say the words and I also use like a very specific, my hand is in your collar. I never take my hand off. Like if I'll, I'll have one yep. hand on them and it never yep. comes off if we're, yep. and it's, yeah, just kind of setting up these predictable routines of, yeah. I'm always going to inform you. And I feel like over time, then that's that concept again, that they can hang their hat on you. Yeah. And so you're part of, to jump over to the E, right? That all goes back to the E. Anything about their relationship, what we're doing, whether it's in that like micro moment of actually doing cooperative care, or whether that's just kind of on a, on a macro level of our entire relationship, we are a big part of their environment. Um, and, and so 
you have to think about like within that environment, like how would any of us feel if our world felt like it wasn't a predictable place? Shoot, think about COVID. How did we all feel? You get anxious when your ability really goes down, mm-hmm. right? And so the brain wants to go, whoo, I can drop my vigilance. I can relax. I don't have to put all this energy into worrying about all of these things um, because I know how things are going to be. And so if I have uh, information, then I don't have to, you know, react in a, in a certain way to these various situations. So yes, talk to your dog regardless. And I, I think for both of these dogs, that would be something I would also suggest because I do for really all of my clients. Um, but it sounds to me like we have an environment issue here where the dog had one level of very extreme environment. And now the dog has another level of extreme environment mm-hmm. where the dog is kind of in a social vacuum and even an exercise vacuum. Mm-hmm. So uh, my, my kind of week one suggestion to a person like this would be let's create some predictability let's figure out a safe place where you can at least walk your dog where you can do it every day even if that means honey you got to set your alarm for 5 a.m because that's Mm -hmm. the time where we find we can create the safety that you're needing to and then i would also help her put in some type of a predictable pattern when other dogs were presenting on on trails or walks or paths or sidewalks um where we kind of do an out sit wait out sit wait something predictable that gives space automatically um, I'm going to make sure that my body is positioned so that it's clear that I'm mom arming the moment. So even just inches forward in space, closer to the thing than the dog is again, running interference. I got it. Nothing to be seen here. We'll sit here and we'll play. Look at that with the dog. I'm a huge fan of look at that as opposed to look at me. Let's talk about the scary thing or the dudes going by the windows with the gun and be on the same page about it. Um, and then if you overreact or become too aroused, then I want to do the run interference thing again. Uh, also making sure I have the dog on equipment particularly with these dogs I don't like just using collars because of that whole agitation collar thing so I want to work on something that's gonna you know help the dog kind of uh, retract when they become aroused so something like a Nutrix head halter or a freedom harness front attach harness Mm -hmm. I prefer those for these kinds of dogs um So, you know, again, just recap real quick, the learning on this dog to me actually sounds like it was pretty good. It sounds like the dog had some good socialization, has some good skills under her belt, um, uh, or it would have actually happened a lot earlier, I'd say, um, because if there's only been one real altercation for all those times that this dog went to daycare, then there's clearly some skill level there. Um, I was gonna bring in really quickly in terms of the environment that's specific for this dog too, is this wasn't a neutral environment. So by the time the dog hit sexual maturity, then the dog is going to start perceiving that environment differently because mom is there. Mm -hmm. So now we have a social alliance in a non-neutral environment because I go here every day. And remember that that alliance, one of the flip sides of, of, of the bond that we don't often think about, we think of bond and oxytocin as all warm and fuzzy goodness, but the flip side of that coin is oxytocin related aggression, which is the mama bear phenomenon. Or if you touch my partner, I'll slug you, but like basically we protect those bonds. And so it would make sense that once that dog is also moving through sexual maturity, the dog is gonna perceive you know, interactions with that person differently. Now you didn't describe anything to me along those line so we didn't start there because it wasn't like specific to proximity of another dog to the owner or something like that but that would make me think that that could have been a bigger phenomenon but I did want to point that out that that's definitely a confounding factor here certainly certainly so um I think that was all the notes I wanted to make on that one I Um, think so I think it's basically um this is a case where it isn't that bad 
but probably there's a, a lot of stigma making it worse. Right. There are certainly cases where it is that bad. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what kind of feeds the stigma a lot of the time. So I think it was really important for us to go into the G there and really talk about these guys. Um, yeah. And where they're coming I, from. Yeah, I, I think we're scared to talk about it because of the stigma and that makes sense, but it's not either or y'all. I mean, like, yeah. you know, we have to understand what a dog was bred for to understand the point of reference for what we might be looking at. And the fact that frankly, the dog isn't even choosing the level of engagement when it is that high level of engagement in the same way that the herding dog isn't choosing to chase the bicycle tire, you know, it yeah. just kind of pops out. And so if we can look at it that way, and then we can also look at every case by case rather than say, all pit bulls are going to do damage, <laughs> right, we can right. say, well, it's within the context of legs. And so far, what we know about this dog is that this dog actually has really good ritualized signals and cues based on the information. I would want to find out more and give this dog more opportunities to try again. I love it. So do we have time to do a third? Uh, let's make, yeah, let's make it a relatively low, it a less third. complicated one. Yeah. It's like, we already picked on border collies a lot. Yeah. So we're just going to pick on them again and it'll go quick. So <laughs> we've got six month old intact male border collie puppy purchased from a breeder at eight weeks. And he engages in stalking and chasing of cars and bicycles, as well as stalking and chasing other dogs, particularly owners, other dogs, when she recalls them, when she's out with everybody off leash, he is healthy. He is normal but he does these things that make mm -hmm. getting him adequate exercise a little bit hard. Okay. So specifically the problem is stalking and chasing other dogs off leash with her dogs. That would be the biggest complaint. He does do the thing. He does do the um, sticky, sticky stalky bullshit at anything that moves. So we've got cars, bikes, etc. Okay. Cars, bikes, etc. And, um, Okay, six month intact male border collie. See if there's anything else I wanted to ask. What's what's the kind of like environment like? Lots of off leash hiking. Like most of this is off leash, or is a lot of this happening on leash? The he would really only see cars on leash in okay. town, but um, bikes could be off leash. He's primarily exercised off leash um, every day, multiple times a day. Okay. Okay, and um, no engagement other than kind of stalking, barking, light nipping at legs and things of that nature? Correct. And he does, he does live with other dogs? Yes. Okay, and are those dogs correcting him for any of these behaviors when directed towards them? No, ignoring it. Okay. But not recalling as well as he used to because being kind of punished <laughs> by, by obnoxious puppy. Uh-huh. That's funny. So basically we have someone else other than me and you running interference here. We have a six month old border collie running yes. interference on a recall. Shocking. Right. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. That sounds super fun. Um, which is also, by the way, y'all, let's just start with the G here. Going to be super self-reinforcing because we're effectively controlling the behavior of another. Yes. Right. Very which much. is exactly what we do as a herding dog. I yes, we love control it. others. It's so amazing. Look at the effect I can have on your behavior. Wow. Super powerful. So, um, I think that that's, that's an important place to start. So I, I would say, um, 
this would be fun. You've got a young dog. It hasn't really like tripped into any super problematic fever, fever pitches yet. It's more annoying than anything else at this point. Correct. Um, Very smart owner wanting to head it off now. Right. Right. And so, you know, I, I would think about these two different contexts because I, I, you want two different things. And you and I touched on this in the last podcast about do we, and here too, do we want to build up drive in this context or do we want the dog to be going the other direction? Calm down, no big deal. We're just chilling. So I would say like on the leash stuff with bikes and cars, we really want to turn that off. We want to be like, nope, you're in like standby, you know, dormant mode right now, as far as your engagement with your environment, really hard to say that to an off-leash dog. So with the off-leash situation, I would say it's more about how then, right? We want to like really work out the details here of like, yes, it's okay for you to be super excited and explosive and running around and having a blast and letting your hair down. Um, however, what you're doing with your buddies here, we were finding highly inappropriate and problematic for a number of reasons. And at some point that would also turn into um, an invitation for a fight, right? because at some point you're going to do that to another dog that's going to turn around and give you what for. So, um, okay. Then everyone's pretty clear at this point on all the things we've been picking on herding dogs about. So I'm not going to do a deep dive back into that G, right. but we all, we all know where we're at with that. Um, and in, in terms of socialization really quick, this dog has been even aside from the additional dogs that it lives with well socialized. Yes. Okay. Very much. Has some decent impulse control behavior. I mean, impulse, sorry, not impulse control behavior, impulse control in general, emotional regulation. Yes, he does not appear to be abnormal in any of those ways. He can be okay, created but... easily, um, that doesn't get pissed at his puzzle toys. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Good. Good. Um, so yeah, I would say then I'd go left on the leash and I'd go right on the hiking. So let's talk about the left part first. Mm -hmm. So if we're going to go left on the leash, I would say, um, I would work on, uh, again, something like an out sit weight, um, or even an out weight, depending on the dog. Again, some dogs are going to get cocked back a little hotter if you actually put them in or sit or a down. Mm. Some dogs do better in a down than a sit. So I would play around with some of those variables and see what seems to actually be the calmest. But I would practice at a place where I've got some distance from the cars because the closer the presentation of that fast movement, the harder it's going to be for the dog to not take the bait on it. So I would try to find some places where I've got some controllable proximity and I would work on just an out and wait on one of those forms of a sit or a down or just even a stand, but I wouldn't be redirecting onto a tug toy in that situation because I want the message to be, dude, you're on stand down mode. We're on a leash hike. Leash hikes are boring. It's like you're riding shotgun in the car or leash mm -hmm. walks, shotgun in the car while we're going down the street. You're really not meant to interact with all this, but they don't really know that unless we create some clarity there. Going back to the predictability bit too, and the fact that these dogs tend to be kind of rigid, I would kind of follow a certain operating set of guidelines for that type of walk and have it be super orderly, like the children in line at school behind teacher versus out in the woods, totally different game. You know, yes, we still have little order of operations for various things that we're doing, um, but the high level of structure is going to be applied to the leash stuff where there's there's no ifs, ands, or buts. You don't decide how you're relating with these things. You're kind of following my lead. Um, so I would build in some various skills, obviously, for that dog so you have more tools in your toolbox, um, even the things like the all done and the naming like we're talking about. Yeah, so yeah. 
I, I, I do for all my clients, dogs with leash stuff too, we're going to name all the things because if we talk about the things, then by, by elimination, we'll know they're not sheep. Right. And so we're just going to say, oh yeah, that's a car. Yeah. We're going to wait. That's a car. Good job. Look at that again. So I'm playing, look at that for looking, behaving appropriately, not engaging in the thing. And we're going to name it. I give you information about it. And then I validate that you're doing it right in the face of that. So giving them information that we know what it is, as opposed to us just walking down the street, acting like there's no car. I think with these dogs, again, they need more information than other breeds of dogs because we've bred them to be like, how do you want me to do it? How do you want me to do it? How do you want me to do it? So they have more anxiety when we're not telling them about everything that's happening. They're like the why child, right? What is that? Why mommy? Why? What is that? What is that? And it just doesn't stop. So you better be prepared to just not enjoy your walk and tune out and listen to a podcast if you're walking on leash through a neighborhood, because you really need to be on top of that and engaging and maintaining that dialogue about all of the things. So I would name, I'd build in some core skills, all done, work on stand down, low arousal, emotional regulation in that context. In terms of the the hiking and the walking thing, I think what I would try to do is figure out um, some some good old like mutually exclusive other behaviors that could be then replaced for say cutting my buddies off when when they're running. So for instance, I would work up a distance um, downstay or a distance sit stay or even a distant wait and build that up from various distances with a high reinforcement uh, history that I could then use in those situations to say, okay, so this is one of the most fun things that ever happens is when you guys are out far away and then the other dog starts running back, I'm gonna throw up my hand into a wait and you can freeze on a dime and the suspense builds and builds and builds and builds and builds and builds until the other dogs get back and then I go, okay. catch up with them so it feels like it's part of the fun yeah but we're just going to kind of switch it up a little bit in the presentation um and then similarly I would also practice in a controlled situation with off-leash dogs with my like so you have your dogs that person's dogs off-leash put this one on leash for a minute and just practice like leaving them alone while they're Mm -hmm. just being dogs and doing their things and talking those are just dogs those are just dogs playing we're just going to leave it We're just going to be out over here and we're going to leave it and then build that up to dragging that leash. And then, you know, um, being able then if you do need to interrupt the behavior, I would use a drag leash with that dog right now too, just so I could interrupt behavior if I needed to. Mm -hmm. Um, But just to be able to say, why don't we work on it when it's a little more controlled and we'll, we'll be using our whole naming thing and talking about it and talking about not engaging in that particular behavior and the ability to let it go when it's happening. Sometimes, yes, you can engage, you can play, you can chase, you can run around but you also don't have to, which I think is an important thing too. Just because dogs are playing doesn't mean you have to be all up in the middle of it, right? Um, And then I would also then have a consequence of, I'm sorry, no points this round, Bob, lose a turn, fun penalty for five or so minutes if we were out and about hiking and whatever, and we have a really inappropriate, say, sweeping of the leg while the other dog is coming back and rehauling. Anything below the belt is you have a five minute fun pen, fun penalty. So everything gets boring for five minutes and you have to hold mommy's hand while everyone else is having a good time. Excellent. Just so I that it's productive. It. Yeah. So um, again, we covered the G. The S is nothing like profound there at six months old. We're coming into our I'm all that in a bag of chips kind of tweeny. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. yes. Like, I, I'm like almost a teenager. So like, I think I'm cool. So I'm a short show my butt. So that's a little part of it. Yeah. 
Um, but the environment sounds like it's it's very much able to afford some opportunities to work on this stuff. Um, sounds like the learning is all kind of in line. I would just kind of make sure for that particular client that I'm saying, hey, huge emphasis on emotional regulation and the grip contingency, huge emphasis on predictability um, and, and, and making some routines out of how you're dealing with those kinds of situations so that you have those tools at your disposal. Um, and then naming everything ad nauseum so that you kind of feel like you've been watching too many episodes of Sesame Street. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, okay, we have covered a ton. I've taken a lot of your time, Kim. I really, really appreciate this. I think everybody's gonna love this conversation. And I well, I hope so. It's kind of hard, honestly, when we're doing like you know make believe cases, and you know it, it's very different because it's hard for me too. You're like, and yeah. what about this? And I'm like, well, how about this? <laughs> right, right. You just got to make up the criteria. But I mean, I, I guess the thing that's fun about this, and what I want people to take away from this, rather than apples to apples is to think outside the box a little and, and give yourself permission to realize that not everything is a training problem. And sometimes, sometimes we can use training to solve problems, but sometimes there's other things that we can use to solve problems that just kind of get to the source, like that whole naming thing and creating more predictability in the relationship and in the environment in general, you know, um, that that's not just kind of training in the traditional sense. It's, it's, other things that are going on and that the whole picture of the legs matter and and that we're nothing about legs for those who do have concerns about kind of using genetics as any type of a guide for looking at an animal we're never trying to be predictive we're just using that as a point of reference to hopefully help complement our understanding of what's happening and sometimes it'll have something to do with the genetics and sometimes it won't have a darn thing to do with it but we're just looking just so that we're we're making sure that we're as aware as we possibly can be I love it. I think it's a very holistic way of looking at everything. Just making sure that you are actually seeing all of the pieces mm -hmm. rather than reducing it to kind mm -hmm. of an input output situation mm -hmm. because it's really just not that simple. Yeah. And, and frankly, you know, my own clients are the reminder of that for me because this all sounds really great on paper or a podcast, right? But what, how does it actually work? And a lot of people say, sure, Kim, but you know, what about when your job is to change behavior? Well, guess what? My job is to change behavior too. I do the same thing, right? I'm, I'm a trainer. I'm a behavior consultant. And what I'll share with folks is that I cannot tell you the, the better I get at working from legs and understanding this, the better I get at actually solving problems meaningfully in shorter periods of time. Because if you can get to the bottom of something, I had a case just a couple of days ago, met with the people one time virtually, never even met the dog, reactive to the two Great Dane puppies in the house, barking at every little squirrel farting and you know pin dropping anywhere in the universe, in the house, outside. If the other Danes got anywhere near the dog, you'd explode into rage. We worked with DAP collar, CBD, naming everything and running interference when we kind of get overwhelmed by things that are going on like, oh, that's okay. Why don't you just come over here and take five, like take a break from the stimulation. A couple of weeks later, the dog's just doing great. She's like, he's so completely relaxed. He's not barking at things outside. He's not barking at the other dogs. He started playing with the Danes, you know, and it's really about like, how is he feeling? 
And what does he have questions about? This particular dog, in my perspective, from my review, had tons of questions about his environment and no one was ever answering any of his questions. And so he felt anxious all the time. Like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know whether those sounds mean anything. I don't know whether like, you know, I need to worry about this or this. And I think a lot of the times the dogs are telling us they have questions and concerns and problems and frustrations and they don't think we're listening. Yeah. And so just talking to them more, giving them more information, having a plan, you know, giving feedback that makes sense is often what they're really needing. It's not so much that they necessarily need training at all. And I just want people to give themselves permission to step back and see that maybe the solution doesn't have a darn thing to do with ABC. I think that's a fantastic place to end. Thank you so much, Kim. This was great. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. And if you're interested in supporting this podcast, as well as joining the CogDog Radio community, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio and become a patron for as little as $4 a month. I hope to see you there. Cheers.